Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I barely remember the last time we spoke It was you and your husband and me in your car Laughing and filling that car with smoke What a lovely family you were Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Diana Anderson, Diana is a non-binary writer who has written several books, including most recently, In Transit, Being Non-Binary in a World of Dichotomies. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Weathered. Weathered is an indie band from Minnesota. You can get connected with Diana and Weathered and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, we have none other than Diana Anderson. I'm really excited for this conversation. Diana, you are a non-binary writer, and you have a master's degree in English from Baylor University and a whole bunch of other degrees, including a master of studies in women's studies from the University of Oxford in the UK. You're one of those Oxford people. How does it, how does it feel to yes. like be one of those esteemed Oxford people? <laughs> it's like considered like one of the best universities in the world, right? Yes. Yeah. It's a top rated university. Their uh, women's studies program is relatively new, but they, um, yeah, it's, it's weird because there's, it's one of the oldest, it is the oldest university in the English speaking world. Wow. So there's a lot of weird traditions that do not make I sense. I would imagine so. <laughs> in the modern I, I would imagine yeah. so. So not only do you have all these, these degrees, but you also have written a few books, including your most recent one in transit, being non-binary in a world of dichotomies. And I'm really excited for this conversation. So with all of that said, who is Diana Anderson to Diana Anderson? Oh, goodness. That's a good question. 
I am a non-binary person who was raised in South Dakota, but I've lived all over the place now living in Minnesota. And so I am deeply Midwestern and I'm very interested in um, talking through like identities and ideas about people in both intellectual and real world pragmatic uh, ways and stuff. So I'm very interested in the cross sections between identity and religion and class and race and all those different ways as they affect and create a person. Wonderful. Wonderful. I, I love the way that we can connect by the fact that we both were raised in South Dakota and then now are Minneapolis people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always been a fun connection. You, we, there's not too many South Dakota people out there in the world. So to be able to connect yeah. with some, uh, especially <laughs> those who are kind of in the same kind of progressive-ish sphere that we're in is kind of fun to, you know, make some of those connections because there's definitely a distinct South Dakota experience uh, as we grow up. And yes. so the fact that we can kind of relate in that way is really fun. Uh, let's chat about the book. What did you learn about yourself yes. as you wrote the book? You know, there's been a lot of learning about yourself or the over these last few years, I would imagine. So what about it specifically while writing this book did you learn about yourself? The book was a lot of sort of sense making of myself and how I saw myself fitting into the trans and queer community with this non-binary identity, Mm. because there's this ongoing discussion within uh, trans spaces of uh, how do we define transgender, because it's such a broad umbrella Mm -hmm. of things. Like if you look at like if you Google the trans umbrella, it includes everybody from like intersex people to gender nonconforming cis women. And that just doesn't, it doesn't make sense anymore to like include all of that under the trans umbrella. So in exploring the book, I wanted first to look at the history of the transgender movement and to look at what's ways we can move forward to be inclusive of people who are sort of binary trans where like they feel the need to go through all medical transition people who are more non-binary who don't necessarily feel that need or people who want to not medically transition or can't medically transition how can we include all of those people within this gender expansive Mm. community. And that's eventually the term I landed on was that we are gender expansive. We are not cis. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. We are part of a whole of the large community. Wonderful. So obviously you're diving into a lot of theory, a lot of history. Is there anything in your research for the book, maybe about from gender studies to gender history or whatever it might have been? What did you maybe learn kind of historically or in theory or whatever as you wrote the book that maybe you didn't know before i mean i know you're very well uh studied in this in this area but i'm sure there's like some little you know nuggets here or there that were brand new to you yeah i knew a lot of like 20th century history of of the lgbt community broadly but delving into specific trans history i learned a lot about historical figures in in trans history like Particularly in America, we like to talk about how like, well, the the founders were white men who didn't envision like all these different sexualities, all these different genders and stuff. But they had somebody who was contemporaneous with them called the public universal Mm. friend who was a Quaker slash shaker. They kind of shared a bunch of those things. They, They were Quaker and then were sort of kicked out, but they underwent an illness in 1776 and ended up 
sort of waking up as this genderless being is mm. how they presented themselves. And they called themselves the public universal friend and ran sort of a commune in upstate New York that was very uh, equality driven, very like gave women uh, equal place within their church and all that. And so there's this long history of people like me existing mm-hmm. and being like religiously motivated in a lot of ways, but it also shows that it's variation that happens and has been happening for centuries. Right. As long as there are humans, there have been trans and non-binary people. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, including a number of indigenous cultures, they've always had two-spirit people as well, mm-hmm. which I would imagine kind of in our contemporary umbrella of thinking around this, that a lot of those folks would fit under this trans umbrella. Yeah, in in doing uh, studies on that, I found that a lot of Native cultures, like two-spirit itself is sort of a colonial term. It's the term oh. that some tribes used, but not all okay. of them. And so it, it sort of got applied generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tribes have adopted to it. And so, but like, there have always been people in those in native cultures, um, not even just in America, but all the way over in East Asia and stuff who t- were like born men, but took on women's roles and things like that. Um, and they always had this sort of flexibility, mm-hmm. but it was colonialism that brought in a very, very rigid sense of what gender is and what your body means that you should take on these roles. Mm-hmm. And stuff, and so that warped everything. Yeah. So it goes back to being white people's fault. Of course, of course. <laughs> I, I want to dive into more of the Christian history later, but before we do that, let's dive into your personal history. Obviously, you have a lot of personal investment in this. Yeah. So, can you share a little bit about your personal story of growing up in very conservative South Dakota, like I did, and then eventually coming out as non-binary? So, in whatever version you want to tell about it, but I, I'd love to hear this story because I'm really curious about it. Yeah, I grew up like knowing that I was different in some way. I didn't have the words for it because I'm I'm mid thirties. I was born in in the eighties, so I grew up in the nineties, and there wasn't a lot of visibility, especially in South Dakota, mm-hmm. of just queer people in general. I remember when what one of my high school classmates came out and stuff, I was surprised, even though like he had bright pink hair and was very like effeminate. Like it was very obvious that he was flaming gay, but it was still like taboo during those Mm -hmm. times and stuff and so growing up in that culture I didn't know that there were words that could describe how I felt like tomboy was the closest thing that I had and so I really latched onto that but then by the time I was a teenager and could start like articulating some of that I was also deeply deeply invested in evangelicalism Mm -hmm. And felt always like I was trying to learn how to be the best woman in evangelicalism, no matter what that meant. And so for me personally, as far as how I felt about myself. And so it's always felt like I was trying to learn how to play this role, how to how to undergo this, like, I figured like everybody was confused by what it meant to be whatever gender they are. And so just had to learn all these rules to go by um, and stuff. And it wasn't until I was in my twenties that I was like, Oh, I'm queer. Like not everybody looks at other people the way that, Mm -hmm. that I do. 
um, and stuff and recognized that I was queer. And so I was a queer woman for a while. And then in the mid 2000, in the mid 2010s, um, I met some non-binary people. And by then I knew what gender queer and non-binary and stuff were. And I wanted to be that, but didn't realize I just could. Oh. <laughs> um, and so, and, and it was one of those things where I was like, oh, I wish I could just use they, them pronouns like that person. Like in the trans community, we call it like um, you're an egg at that point where like you, you kind of have these feelings, but you haven't connected them to being trans. Right. You haven't connected them to, to a non-cis gender identity and stuff. And then the pandemic hit and I had a lot of time on my hands <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to come out. Like yeah. I am not. That egg cracked during I the am. pandemic. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I just was like, I, I had a lot of time just sitting at home alone, talking to people and uh, online and, and stuff, which sounds like um, what TERFs would call rapid onset gender dysphoria. Mm. But instead, I just found the language to describe what I had always been right. experiencing. What a what a liberating experience it is. And, and, and this happens, I think, in lots of different experiences. For me, uh, I remember encountering language and thought that I knew to be true, like that my spirit told me was true. And I just didn't have actual actual language and, and systems and frameworks to work around to 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 make sense of all of what I was actually sensing. And so it's really beautiful that for for you when it when it came to gender, you started to encounter some of these different thoughts and language that actually became like, oh, that's actually what I'm feeling and I'm glad to know that this yeah. language and these frameworks actually already exist. Yeah, it it's I talk about the process of coming out as finding the language for who you mm. are. Uh very often because we can't one of the reasons the uh, current legislation that bans LGBT books, that suppresses LGBT talk in schools is so dangerous is because it is denying people the language they need to talk, talk about themselves and to figure out who they themselves are. And that can cause a lot of pain and anguish. I spent, you know, a good 15 years from like the point when I was 10 to the point that I was 25, trying to fit myself into this mold of what Christian evangelicalism thought woman should mean. Mm. And it was incredibly upsetting and heartbreaking. I had so much anxiety, like since coming out my, I, I have an anxiety disorder, but since coming out, my anxiety has gone like mm. whoosh, way down. And, stuff. and I think a part, a large part of that is that just knowing who I am has relieved so much of that mm. dysphoria. That's so beautiful. Let's dive into the theology of all of this. You briefly mentioned, yes. obviously, that you grew up in evangelicalism. What theological constructs were given to you when you were young that really shaped the way you thought about your gender at that time? Yeah, the theological construct of man and women in evangelicalism is very much that they are separate roles. They are mostly equal, but women are created to serve men and men should be leaders. Men should be the breadwinners of the household. So like I thought my goal in life was to get married to a man and support him. Mm. And, so, and obviously like that was not a thing that was going to happen for me because I was never going to be happy in that role. 
And I write in the book about the moment that that sort of broke apart for me was my senior year in college. I was, I went to a Christian college studying theology, like doing all the good religious things. And I was talking to a guy friend and was like, just complaining, like, why don't guys ever ask me out? Because Mm -hmm. like, Nobody had asked me out up to that point. I was 22 and never been kissed. And my friend replied, well, you're really smart and it's really intimidating. And I was like, that's not something I can change. Like, you're asking me to make myself smaller so that men won't be intimidated by me. And I had this moment of resistance where I was like, oh, That's what evangelicalism wants of Mm. me. That's what this theological construct is. I have to make myself smaller. I have to not say what's on my mind, not intellectually engage. And I am not a person who is capable of turning that off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, because that's how I approach the world. And it, it really sort of broke that part of me that wanted to be that perfect evangelical woman. Because I realized that that meant not being me in a lot of ways. And that was really the start of me breaking with those evangelical constructs. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to talk about the theological constructs that have shaped where you are at now when it comes to gender. But before we do that, mm-hmm. let's dive into some of the theory, which you're so good at. Uh, at the beginning of the book, you talk uh, about gender theorist uh, Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, hopefully my French is good there. Mm-hmm. One of the most insightful things that I've read from from her, uh, from De Beauvoir, uh, over, I don't know, like probably a couple of years ago now, is that gender is performed. Uh, and so that means that all social constructions, not just gender, but all social constructions, to some extent, are performed. Uh, and so a couple of years ago, I encountered this insight. And for me, I connected it to mean that that also means that for God to perform as human in the person of Jesus. So God too is in the person of Jesus is like performing all these social constructions that are placed upon humanity. And so, yeah, I'm curious, like, do you have any thoughts around performance of these social constructions as it relates to God in the person of Jesus? Um, You know, I I don't know whether or not you would consider yourself a Christian or not anymore, but I'm sure you have thoughts around this, Mm -hmm. uh, given the fact that you at least grew up in Christianity and obviously have lots of thoughts around gender performance and all of this. Yeah, I don't know that I consider myself a Christian anymore, although like culturally that's such a huge part of my mm-hmm. background and a part of who I am that it's still something that I talk about and engage with all the time. So the person of Jesus was really interesting. Um, I actually went out yesterday wearing a shirt that says God is trans mm. <laughs> as part of making. Is that one of Kevin Garcia's shirts, by the way? Yes. Shout out to Kevin yeah. <laughs> and their great shirts. It's it's it's. It's a beautiful shirt, but like the theological point that is making is it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's also a very good theological point is that Jesus didn't have a father, so he couldn't have had X, Y chromosomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the sort of argument there is that Jesus was sort of taking on the role of man because that was what was respected as um, authoritative in that society. Mm -hmm. Um, We think about the, uh, the women who came to wit to see uh, Jesus after he uh, was crucified and discovered the tomb empty, they weren't relieved right away, even though they were proclaiming, 
you know, this great thing that had happened and stuff. And because that's the sort of culture they lived in where a woman's word didn't make much sense. So Jesus took on this role as a man, but he also overturned it in a lot right. of ways and was taking on this sort of humility that you don't often see in masculinity. And so, and so he sort of walked this almost like almost non-binary line, I think I want to say, of of being somebody who was caring like a mother and authoritative like a father and stuff in those time periods. Mm-hmm. Um, and stuff. And we find a lot of that in descriptions of the parent god as well. Uh, I forego saying father right. god anymore is god the parent and stuff because they are portrayed both as a brooding mother and as a uh caring father mm-hmm. um in a lot of ways so god themselves is probably non-binary right. uh within the gospel right the, what i love so much about christianity and i, I don't know if I, I don't think it's exclusive to just christianity but i love this idea that even god performs this very human experience of gender and again all these other social constructions but especially gender in the person of Jesus mm-hmm. and that's such a human experience we all to some degree are performing all these different social constructions and yes. the claim in Christianity is that God too is performing these same things that he, all humans are performing and so i love that god is actually yeah. very much experiencing this very human type of experience of performance including gender performance yeah, absolutely. It's something where you see at some point uh Jesus as a kid was taught about these things and stuff like he didn't enter into the world well it's part of the fully god fully human paradox and stuff but like he had a way of knowing what the roles were and performing mm-hmm. them. And I always like to uh when we're talking about gender as performance to add the corrective from Judith Butler, who's a major uh, gender theorist and stuff, that just because it's performative doesn't mean it's right. Fake. Right. Uh, it still has meaning. It still is something that is innate to a lot of people, but it is still something that we have culturally agreed upon to play these mm-hmm, roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great caveat there. So let's jump into the Christian history of of all of this. You mentioned before about the public universal friend, and I want to dive into some more examples of this. So, uh, and, and I also love your term of gender expansiveness. So let's talk about all of the different examples of gender expansive folks that have been a part of not only history in general, but specifically Christian history. So can you talk about some of these really important examples? Because you mentioned some of them in the book, some of these really important examples of gender expansive people that are central to Christian history. Yeah, we have a lot of, there are lots of biblical figures who take on these roles that are considered opposite of their gender or different from their gender. Uh, One of the um, metaphors that uh, my friend Austin Hartke, who wrote Transforming the Bible and Transgender Christians, brings up is that God created the sun and the moon, but he also, he created day and night, but he also created dusk and dawn. There are all these, uh, what we think are barriers between people, but we see 
we see these variations mm. that happen in the middle, the very beauty of sunset mm-hmm. um, and that sort of thing. And so we see that with um, particularly in the culture of the ancient times of the Bible, we see uh, eunuchs who play a different role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and than- for those who are unfamiliar, can you explain like what a eunuch was at that time? A eunuch was a castrated man who was often in sort of some subservient role um, mm. in a lot of ways um, and stuff. You see that a lot in the Roman Empire. There were a lot of, of eunuchs who either were forcibly castrated or had been born that way. Maybe they were intersex, that sort of thing. And so we see these the ways that these different physical embodiments changed that person's mm-hmm. role within the society. And there's this very, very interesting passage that almost in some ways feels a little random that's in the Bible about a eunuch. So I, I, I don't know if, how much you talk about it in the book, but can you at least talk a little bit about that example? Yeah. Because this is one of the very first uh, important pieces of Christian history. Uh, and it it's centered around a eunuch, uh, this person who uh, very much had a very, that didn't fit necessarily in the binary gender of the day yeah that person is really an interesting character because it is somebody who becomes the sort of missionary to africa Mm. in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. um as as somebody who's told to yeah philip is headed toward the south and he meets this eunuch along the way i'm just refreshing my memory and the really interesting thing is if i remember right this eunuch is one of the first con- converts to Christianity. Yes. Uh, I mean, this the, the the story is told in Acts eight, so that's a very you know it's very early on yep. uh, in in the history of the early church. And the really interesting thing is that the Ethiopian Christian community is very much one of the first Christian communities, and to this day. Christianity has been a part of Ethiopian's history, and so uh, this eunuch was likely one of the one one of the people who, in, in some sense, founded this Christian community that has remained mm-hmm. ever since, which is really really cool. And it was this person who definitely did not fit within the gender binary of the day, mm-hmm. which is just incredible. Yeah, that this very very important person in Christian history is is not the binary of a man or a woman. Yeah, it's this person who, upon meeting Philip, learns of the gospel and says, oh, well, there's water right here. Can you baptize me now? Like, is just this instantly taken over by the spirit. Um, And there's one within Acts, we see a lot of like, this is the book of the Holy Spirit acting on the early church in a lot of ways. So we see the Holy Spirit acting in this specific way where God, the parent has chosen this person Mm -hmm. to not to get, get Calvinist, but like (laughs) has, has like chosen to bless this person in some way as a carrier of the Mm -hmm. gospel. And that's, that for me is a blessing on non-binary people in, in. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and their centrality to the, to Christian history. So, the eunuch, public universal friend. What are some other examples of uh, non-binary people or gender expansive people that are very important to Christian history? Yeah, there are, man, I'm going to have to think more about that because I did a lot with like Jewish history as well. Oh, well, let's hear those um, examples. And, stuff, and there are, yeah, yeah. And that's also a part of Christian history and stuff. But there's there's evidence that 
like there were there were trans and non-binary people within the early Jewish traditions mm. and stuff. And we have uh throughout the Talmud, people talk about that um with like with the uh kosher prohibitions about not wearing women's clothing and stuff like that. And I mentioned in the book uh Rashi, the medieval rabbi, explaining that this isn't really about like people who do this as part of their daily life but really it's it's a prohibition against men deceiving women by pretending to be women Mm -hmm. that sort of thing and that's not what trans people are and rashi seems to make a distinction about Mm. that which is really fascinating for somebody who is in medieval times so and we also see a lot of that continuing throughout jewish tradition up into the 20th century there are most of the Jewish people I know are trans, which is kind of interesting, mm-hmm. because there's this tradition within Judaism of accepting people as God made them to be. And that's sort of how, and and transness and gender expansion and stuff in that norm is part of it. And there are some sects of Judaism where that's not the norm, right, where right. it's like, so people are conservative and orthodox as the same it is with Christianity. Right. And one of the things I've learned throughout studying history and stuff is that for churches a lot of it a lot of the current moment is we are just affirming we're welcoming to trans people and gay people and and other people within that community but like welcoming isn't recognizing that there are queer and trans ways of interacting with god that are helpful Mm. and beneficial to the entire community and that's something that I think the modern church would do a lot to learn from uh, instead of just saying like, okay, yeah, we accept that the, these people are people, but like these are different ways of doing the church. Right. Right. So it's beyond just that queer people are welcome or affirmed in a church, but actually queerness has something to teach the church and the church needs to be shaped around queerness. Yeah. I feel like a lot of cisgender heterosexual people would be like shaping the church around queerness. Oh no. (laughs) But like understanding that queer people have a different experience of God Mm. and that the non-binary parent is themselves a model of God as the, as, as, as I said, as the brooding mother, as the caring father, as these different ways in which what we consider very separate gender roles combine into one person. Well, that actually leads into my very next question. Can you talk about how queerness is not just simply about gender or sexual orientation, but is actually about this like way of being in the world? Like, what does that look like? You know, I'm a a cis straight man. Like, what would it look like for me to understand queerness beyond just simply that it's a you know centered around some sort of like gender orientation or even sexual orientation or gender identity yeah there's this argument that straight homophobes like to make where we've made being gay our entire lives or we've made being trans our entire lives but a lot of it is just when you realize that you yourself are trans or gay a lot of these structures which uphold societal roles sort of become visible mm. Heterosexuality is invisible to a lot of people. Mm. We talk about, I was just reading this morning that like, it's totally normal for a kid to see cleavage and men and women kissing and all those sorts of things. But the second it's two men or two girls, 
who are kissing, then it is. Which is why you see all these conservatives freaking about like Disney movies now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's, it's super visible when it's like two women kissing in a Disney movie. Yeah. than if it was what, what we always see of a man and a woman kissing. Yeah. So being queer, you recognize how like embedded within our cultural, cultural artifacts, within our cultural systems, this idea of heterosexuality is, and this idea of being cisgender is. Um, And that is always a part of dismantling the power structure is to recognize that it exists in a lot of ways. So we end up with, with like trans people are able to recognize when things are gendered in specific ways. Like when I go to, um, we have around here, we have high V grocery stores mm-hmm. in the suburbs and they have this big bathroom area where it's all single stalls, but like half of them are men and half of them are women. <laughs> and it makes no sense because they are all single stalls. They're, they, they have a locking door. There's no reason for that to be gendered. But there are, there are uh, cisgender men and women who would feel weird going into a room labeled the opposite gender. Right. Is up, but they don't recognize that that's part of this power structure that exists. Because, like, when I go in there, I'm like, okay, which bathroom do I use? Because I'm not any of right. them. But if it's a gender neutral bathroom, yay, fine. Right. Just to connect the bathroom thing back to the idea of power structures, that forced labeling in a, uh, will keep trans people out of public spaces. When you don't have a safe place to go to the bathroom, you are less likely to spend four hours out mm-hmm. and stuff because you'll need to you'll need to go use the bathroom right. at some point. And if that's dangerous for you, you can't be in public. Right, right. And so recognizing those power structures and making efforts to change them is a part of how seeing the world through a minority's lens can be really helpful to, to even progressive social justice movements. Right. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So earlier we talked a little bit about your personal history and you coming out as non-binary and specifically talking a little bit about the theological constructions that were used to create your gender identity when you were younger. On the flip side, then, I'm sure there's a history involved going with 
your your coming out and and obviously your gender identity changing and and shaping and and, and all of that over these last several years. But I'm also really interested in like how theology and again, if you're a person of faith, like how that all shaped this this gender identity that you now uh, that you now have. So can you talk a little bit about the way that theology played a role in constructing your gender now? Uh, I would imagine that being non-binary means, you know, dismantling the binaries of the world, including the theological binaries. So, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how theology has shaped your gender identity now? Yeah, for me, it's been a lot of recognizing where I'm at in my sort of, oh, I hate the term, faith journey, (laughs) where I have let go of a lot of what used to be very meaningful for me in Christianity. I've let go a lot of a lot of the idea that like we need Jesus to save us Mm -hmm. and, and those sorts of things, because it's because a lot of that sets up this this like almost coercive binary mm. where like you are either saved or unsaved you are either a sinner or a saint there's binaries used throughout how the modern american church talks about the gospel and talks about how a christian should be And it's not very imaginative. A lot of it is very based on power and who can have it and who has access to it. And so I have found myself identifying more and more with a Jesus who is very liberation uh, centered. I have read a whole lot of James Cone Mm -hmm. over the past decade and read a whole lot of liberation theology. And that takes on a different it, it there's still this binary of oppressor and oppressed mm-hmm. but it is a gospel message that centers the liberation of people from their oppression mm-hmm. from the societal power structures that that says that jesus's uh crucifixion on the cross was not about atoning for our individual sins like every time that we swore at a car that was driving badly or something <laughs> like that that those times that we that evangelicalism likes to harp on right. as um these thought crimes but rather that jesus's that 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 the cross symbolizes a tearing down of power structures mm. of tearing down of those things that keep the the poor the um marginalized the um the minority in these oppressive systems and so that has been much more clarifying uh to me and also like my exploration of my transness has also coincided with an excellent exploration of jewishness Mm. i don't know if i could ever convert to judaism but like having so many jewish friends here in the cities, like half of my friends here are are Jewish and coming from a Christian background. I, I write about this in chapter nine, I think, where I realize that so much of how I've been taught about Christianity is kind of anti-Semitic mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And so realizing that has allowed me to step back from all of it and look at what is important to me in those faith right, moments. Right in the in that story so i i kind of want to go back to some of these like uh, like some of the practical questions you 
mentioned uh, or we, we talked a little bit about how queerness is not, again, simply just like gender identity and sexual orientation, but also this like way of being in the world and that the church especially, it, it's not just enough to welcome or affirm trans and non-binary and queer people, but also to actually be shaped uh, in, in theology and liturgy, all these different ways of the church to actually be shaped by queerness. And I, I think you mentioned like one example kind of throughout this uh, th- this interview where you talk about God as parent, not just necessarily mother mm-hmm. or father, but God as parent. So I think that's one example. So for maybe some of the, the church leaders or people who are very involved in, in Christianity that are listening to this podcast, what are some examples that like if you walk into a church that th- this would the, like some of these examples, these practical examples, whether what what's said or what's done would indicate to you this is a church that's being shaped by queerness. So like, again, you mentioned God being God being talked about as parent. What are some of those other practical examples that, again, if you walked into a church, you would say, yeah, this seems to be a church that's doing what it can to be shaped by queerness? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I'll approach this the way I I do with allies or people who want to be allies to trans people to think about first about your own gender. How did you arrive at your own uh, conclusion that you are cisgender, that you are a man? Think about what it means to be a man or a woman, or what it means to what it would mean for you to be non-binary. Like, how does that make you feel? How does being called the wrong gender make you feel um, and stuff. This was one of the ways that I was able to make things finally click for my sister-in-law. My brother is a chaplain and my sister-in-law is also uh, a Christian. So I come from that faith tradition. And that was one of the ways that it clicked for her was recognizing that if she was not perceived as a woman, it gives her anxiety Mm. in a lot of ways. So it's something that I think more straight cis people should think about is like, what is that experience like just moving through the daily world? And then practically on a church level, normalizing pronoun use, normalizing, giving those out. Like if the usher has he, him or something on his name tag, that can really Mm -hmm. help to be like, okay, we're aware that this is a thing and allowing people to do that on a voluntary basis, not like forcing people to out themselves. Uh, that's also a very careful uh, thing. So normalize it for your leadership and stuff, but like, don't require it. If they want to give their pronouns, they will. Yeah. Don't require it. But also pastor jokes tend to rely on sort of like, or can rely on like these gendered ideas and stuff like I'm a man. So this happened, blah, blah, blah. Or I don't know how to do laundry, blah, 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 that sort of thing. That sort of is a subtle reinforcing of these cultural roles for men and women. So try to come up with better jokes um, <laughs> and but better analogies for your sermons that don't rely on gender stereotypes. And don't, a lot of it is just assume, just don't assume that somebody has, that somebody is cis and het, mm-hmm. uh, that somebody will understand these will feel included by your analogy about marriage or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you hope that in transit inspires and liberates its readers? 
I want other queer people like me to read it and see themselves Mm. in it, to find more of the language that they need to describe themselves, to find themselves able to use those words that they might have been afraid to use before. I know between when I realized I was non-binary and when I realized I needed to come out about being non-binary was the main motivating thing that kept me in the closet was fear. Mm. I was afraid of what it would mean to tell my family. I was afraid of what it would mean for my jobs, for all of that. And I want people to feel stronger and to feel like they have to, they they are able to come out and be comfortable Mm -hmm. with that. Or even if they, if, even if they're in a situation where they can't come out, where they are more comfortable with who they are as a person even if it's closeted for right now or whatever. And secondarily, I want allies to understand that transness isn't something that is fleeting. That is something that just sort of you decided one day. I want people to see how much thought Mm. goes into recognizing this and coming out and what it means for us to be trans and to be non-binary and to exist in this world that honestly hates people Mm -hmm. like me Mm -hmm. because we're confusing because we present a challenge to the way of life that so many people are used to Mm -hmm. and I want that to elicit not just sympathy I'm tired of sympathy I want that to elicit action I want people to say like okay I know of this person's experience and now I can know when they say they just want to live their life, what that means and how I can make it easier for those mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. I, I love your point about for a queer or trans person reading your book and, and finding their story within your story as well. And I, you know, I still remember being in college and starting to have these questions around my faith and reading Rachel Held Evans for the first time and thinking, well, at least there's one other person out there kind of like me. And I hope that there are queer and trans people who might not even be out yet, but read your book and think, oh, maybe there is another person like me. And I really am hopeful that that happens. And maybe it's already happened uh, in, in, you know, with your book. But uh, my, that's my hope as well. Uh, and it's such a liberate, liberating moment when you recognize, oh, there's at least one other person like me out there. Yeah, to hearken back to my evangelical days, uh, C.S. Lewis says that friendship is born of the moment when you go, wait, you too? (laughs) Sort of thing. Like, you recognize parts of yourself in the other. And that's very important to solidarity within a justice movement and just living as a community to recognize that there's no us versus them. There's only us. Lovely, lovely. Uh, Diana, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? And where can they buy the book? Yes, uh, you can buy the book anywhere books are sold. But if you buy it from Moon Palace Books in Minneapolis, all pre-orders will be signed. Oh. And I'll be doing, yeah, it's a fun uh, pre-order campaign that we're doing with them. I'm really excited They're, they're such it. a great bookstore. Um, Big fan are, of them. They They are so fantastic. They are queer owned. They um, are very justice minded. They're very good people. And I've had so much fun working with them. So Moon Palace Books is the indie bookstore that you want to go to or go to your local indie bookstore. 
if you want, you can find it on Bezos's Empire <laughs> on there. Um, and there will be an audiobook. Wonderful. Uh, narrated by Lovely. me. So if you have trouble reading uh, on the page audiobook, it's still reading. So that will be um, out as well. And you can find me on Twitter at Diana E. Anderson. Uh, Diana with two N's and an E in the middle. And my uh, link tree is the same. If you find a Diana E. Anderson, it's me. Lovely, lovely. And you're a great follow on Twitter. You tweet a lot. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I work from home, so... That's true. Yeah. Well, I, I'm so excited for the book. Uh, you know, I, I loved reading it, and, and thank you so much for for allowing me to to read it a little early. And uh, I'm really excited for all the folks that will be able to to read it. And I, again, I'm really hopeful that there will be you know some people that are like, wait, you too, and uh, and, and hopefully that is such yeah. a liberating moment for them. And so, thank you so much for for sharing a little bit more about it. Thank you for having me. If you would like to connect with Diana and Weathered and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>